0: Well, after the Lord Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that uh, he was placed on a tomb. But then after three days, the Bible says that he rose again. And so what do we do here on Sunday mornings is we remember both. We remember the fact that he died for our sins, but we also remember the fact that he rose Again, therefore, we are called to live resurrection lives. We're called to live in the power of the resurrection, the power at work within us, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, in light of that, please turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4. And this morning, we are considering verse 28 together. Ephesians 4, 28. Short verse, very important verse, nonetheless. This is God's word. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In the first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul made this very definitive statement. He said this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake about it, says Paul. If you are in, on this list and this is your life, this is what you do, this is what you practice, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake. One of the sins that Paul mentions that would preclude someone from entering into the kingdom is the sin of stealing. The thief will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you think it's serious enough? It's Very serious. It is very, very serious. Stealing must be put off. Now, let me add something here important. Is Paul assuming that we are all thieves? Is he assuming that we're all thieves, that that's what we do every day, all day? Well, I don't think so. Likely in its original context, Paul is thinking primarily of those who are very poor and who are therefore tempted to steal more than other people. However, we have to remember that the potential for this particular sin is still in all of us. It is possible, moreover, that some of us came out of a context in which stealing and theft was expected, or maybe practiced, or maybe even an ongoing temptation, maybe still is a struggle for some of us in this room, regardless of where you stand, however, at this very moment, you and I need to remind ourselves of the evil of stealing, stealing, And we must consider some of its many forms. And having done so, we must do what the Bible says. We must identify where we are individually. And then we need to repent where repentance is needed and find forgiveness at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does this remind you of? Verse 28, when I read it, it immediately reminded me of one of the most well-known sections in the entire Bible. What is that? The Decalogue, right? Also known as the Ten Commandments. And we are considering together commandment number eight. You shall not steal. Now, at face value, I think we all understand what this means, don't we? At face value, we understand. Why? Because it is a universal law. It is a universal law. Written in the hearts of all men. Even the, the pagan Romans had a code against stealing. We are born with a conscience that tells us that stealing is wrong. If you have ever taken anything that didn't belong to you, you know what I'm talking about. You understand the issue of a wounded conscience. Uh, conscience. Now, uh, raise your hand if you have ever taken anything that, I'm just kidding. I, I won't make you do that. But if you have ever taken anything that didn't belong to you, you understand the issue of a wounded conscience. You understand the rush that comes from from stealing, from taking something that didn't belong to you because it's telling you that you are doing something wrong. Now, to that extent, we understand what the eighth commandment means. What is not so obvious, however, are some of the implications embedded in this particular commandment. I would argue that for many people, when they think of the, the commandment, you shall not steal, they think it's rather easy to obey. As for, for, for the most part, we simply take it to mean, stay away from someone else's private property. And that would be proper, that is, that is good. But that's certainly not all that is conveyed in the eighth commandment. Let me give you an example of what I mean. For centuries, Christians around the world have wrestled with the 10 commandments and the implications of what those commandments mean. What is an implication? An implication is a conclusion that can be legitimately drawn from a written or an oral statement, which is not explicitly stated in the statement itself. Does that make sense? Okay. I hope it does. I hope it does. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by this. You shall not steal. Some things are obvious about this commandment. Some things are are a given. Other things are not as obvious. Let me prove this to you by giving you an extensive quote from the Westminster larger catechism. Now, for those of you who might not know, a catechism is a teaching tool that uses the method of question and answer to help with memorization of biblical truth. So with regard to the eighth commandment, you shall not steal the people who worked together and the Westminster larger catechism, they asked two questions about this commandment. Two questions. What are the duties required in the eighth commandment? That's the first question. And the second question is this. What are the sins forbidden in the eighth commandment? Now, are you ready for this? I'm going to give you the whole thing. This is gonna be good. Question number one about the Eighth Commandment. What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? Here we go. This is the answer. And I quote Truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between men and men, rendering to everyone his due, restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, giving and lending freely. According to our abilities and the necessity of others, moderation of our judgments, wills and affections concerning worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustentation of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligence in it, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship and other like engagements and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure preserve and further the wealth and outward state of others as well as our own quote. Did you get all that? That's the answer to the first question. What are the duties required in the eighth commandment? What about question number two? What are the sins forbidden in the eighth commandment? Here's the answer. And I quote, the sins forbidden in the eighth commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealings, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man, or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery vexatious loss, unjust enclosures and depopulations, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or of enriching ourselves. Covetousness, inordinate pricing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and destructing cares and studies in getting keeping and using them envying at the prosperity of others as likewise idleness, prodigality, wasteful gaming and all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that state, which God has given us. End quote. You shall not steal. They got all that from four words. You shall not steal. This is what Christians from past generations believed that the 8th commandment actually taught lots of implications and this is by the way proper exegesis and proper hermeneutics. Every time we study the Bible we must come to the text knowing that there's always more than meets the eye. There's always something that goes deeper. And this is what we see in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. Paul doesn't just give us the commandment, you shall not steal, but he works out some of the implications. So for the sake of keeping everything within a certain order, I'll I'll give you three questions that we will consider together regarding Ephesians 4.28. Number one, what is stealing? Number two, how do we obey this imperative? And number three, why should we obey this imperative? So let's take question number one. What is stealing? I guess if if we're looking for a concise definition, we could simply say that stealing is unjustly taking someone else's property. However, I want to expand a, a, a bit on that definition this morning. Certainly the Bible has a lot to say about stealing and it can take many forms. So for instance, the Bible speaks of corrupting the word of God as a form of Stealing, did you know that? Those who are false teachers, who are corrupting the word of God, the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 23, that they are actually robbing God of his truth. And then the Lord Jesus confirms that in John chapter 10. Did you know that you can even steal affections from people? David's son, son, Absalom, he did that. He stole the affections of people, says in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Now, for the purpose of our study this morning, let me speak about the word itself. It is clear from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 that Paul is speaking primarily about actual material property being the object of theft. How do I know that? Well, consider how the verse ends. What is the purpose of not stealing? So that you may have something to share, share. So the sh- sharing is the purpose of not stealing. Therefore, Paul has in mind actual material theft. So I suppose the first question we need to ask and answer is this. Who is a thief? Who is a thief? Let me give you the original word, the Greek word that Paul used. Paul said this in the original Greek. Let the klepton, klepteto, no more. Does that sound familiar? Let the klepton, klepteto, no more. The Greek word klepton is the root word from which we get the English word kleptomaniac. Kleptomania. In the world of psychology and psychiatry, this word refers to people who steal things out of compulsion. Right, An uncontrollable urge to steal. They can't control the impulse to take stuff that doesn't belong to them. But this comes from a very materialistic worldview. That removes the spiritual from the conversation. This is very interesting because Paul didn't seem to have a separate category for kleptomaniacs. Paul simply says, let the klepton steal no more. Why did he say that? He said that because Paul understood that the heart of stealing, listen to this. The heart of stealing is not a chemical imbalance in the brain of which we have no control but a moral conscious decision flowing out of the corruption brought about by sin. Stealing then is a sin of which we must repent, not a condition for which we need treatment. We need to be clear on that. But stealing itself can take different forms. I will mention four forms of stealing, stealing as taking. That's the first one that I want to mention. A thief is the one who unjustly takes private property that doesn't belong to him. Uh, this is the more literal definition of the word. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, that wee little man that the Bible mentions in Luke chapter 19. He was a case in point. He took from others what did not belong to him. He was a tax collector. He was a Jewish tax collector who worked for the Roman Roman empire and he demanded more than what was required and kept the extra to himself. Luke says that he was very rich, but he was taking from other people. Therefore, the Jewish people hated him and he was worthy of death. The second form of stealing is stealing as withholding. When a person withholds from someone else what is rightfully theirs, he's stealing from them. The debtor who doesn't repay is stealing. Any form of tax evasion would fall under this category. You're not giving the government what it is it's due. Withholding tithes and offerings is also a form of robbery, says prophet Malachi. A third form of stealing is misusing. When a person misuses company property or resources or even time, time, That person is engaging in a form of robbery. How you conduct yourself at work in terms of the integrity with which you use your time and the resources of the company has a lot to do with stealing. And I will, I will say a few more things about that in just a few moments, but there is a fourth form of stealing that I want to mention. And it is manipulating, manipulating the religious leaders during the time of Jesus The Pharisees were thieves, they were robbers and their thieving was expressed through religious manipulation and of the worst kind. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 21, I want to show you how they stole from people. Luke chapter 21 We're not going to read the whole story. I just want you to be there so that you understand what I'm talking about so that you can have the context. These religious leaders during the time of Jesus, they manipulated people into giving quote unquote sacrificially. They were extortionists and their religious system that they created was made to take advantage of people, even the poorest and the most destitute of all of them. This is a very evil form of theft. What story am I talking about this morning? The story of the poor widow that came to the temple. And you know, the story that she gave how much two small copper coins. What is so shocking about the story? Why is it that this story became so well known around the world? Well, what is shocking about the story, at least at first glance is the magnitude of the offering of the widow. Jesus summed it up in these words. Jesus said this. She gave all she had to live on. Staggering. Do you still have some money in your bank account? If you do, you're not giving the way she did. She gave all she had To live on. Is she really an example of generosity? But why? You may ask, is this story about theft? I thought the story was about generous giving. I don't think it is. Even though it has been presented as such, I have heard a few pastors and I've read a few commentaries that have convinced me otherwise. This is the story of how stealing through religious manipulation takes place. The story of the widow is placed within a very specific context. In the case of Luke, he places the story of the widow in between two other narratives. If you go to chapter 21 and you consider, I'm sorry, chapter 20, 20 verse 45 at the end of chapter 20, what do you have? Jesus describes, describes the religious leaders of the time that worked alongside the Pharisees. How does he describe them? Consider verse 47 of chapter 20. They devour widows' houses. They don't love widows. They don't love widows. Consider what it says afterward. Consider what it says after the story of the widow, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 21. What did Jesus say about the temple? He will destroy, it will be destroyed. The entire system of religion developed by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees will be destroyed. In the middle of those two narratives, the Lord talks to us about the widow that gave everything she had to live on Why is it important to consider the surrounding context? It is important because it tells us that the story of the widow is not there to make her an example of generosity, but the victim of a corrupt system of religion led by thieves. This shouldn't come as a surprise. It was Jesus himself who said of the Pharisees and the scribes that they were full of greed and self-indulgence. In Luke chapter 16, verse 14, Luke tells us explicitly that these men were lovers of money. It is no wonder then that in their empty religiosity, they created a system in which people were trapped either in self-righteousness or despair. The widow falls in the second category. She was a person in despair. She was poor. She was lonely. She was desperate. And the religious system of the Pharisees and the scribes preyed on people like her. And just like her, many other people were victims and manipulated into giving more than they actually could. Why? Because the religious leaders in charge of the temple were thieves. They were lovers of money. They were robbers of God. And they were robbers of people. We could easily say that these men were the ancient version of modern day prosperity, gospel preachers. This is a form of stealing. It covers itself in a religious garb, but it is very evil. Let the thief no longer steal whether it is stealing by taking withholding, misusing or manipulating those who engage in these practices must stop. This is where repentance begins. It begins with the realization that these practices are evil and must be followed by a turning away from them. Now, if you consider yourself a Christian and you are involved in any of this, or, you know, someone who is please consider with me the following question, which is also my second point. Number two, how do we obey this command? How do we obey this commandment? Now, in order to to answer this question, we need to consider the two different angles Involved in obedience to this commandment. First of all, there's an internal aspect and there's an external acts aspect. Let me talk about the internal aspect. What are some of the internal causes that would lead someone to steal? I want to quote here from Thomas Watson. He's very helpful. And he identified two main internal causes that would lead someone to steal. Number one, unbelief, unbelief, What type of unbelief? Watson was thinking primarily unbelief regarding God's providence, God's providence. What is God's providence? Well, the providence of God is his sovereign care over his creatures, but more specifically over his children, God, in his providence, he brings about everything that he has decreed for us. So unbelief with regard to God's providential care can lead someone to stealing. When a person comes to the conclusion that God is no longer caring for him or her, that person may decide to take matters into his own hands. This is the anxiety of which the Lord Jesus spoke in the sermon on the Mount, which can lead to sinful decisions. Therefore, Obedience to this particular imperative in Ephesians 4, 28 requires the development of deeper faith, deeper faith. We must consider the promises of God and rest upon them. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, I want to supplement that with a second type of dangerous unbelief that could lead someone to steal, and that is the unbelief regarding God's. Wrath, God's wrath, his righteous wrath. My friend, you must know that God will deal severely with those who engage in theft. One writer compared thieves to sponges, and this is what he said. When these sponges are full of what they have unjustly sucked up, God shall squeeze them and make them refund their ill-gotten treasure. Pretty strong image. What a picture. Imagine God squeezing thieves into vomiting everything they stole. And he will. Therefore, obedience to this particular imperative requires the cultivation of proper fear. The cultivation of proper fear, judgment, is Coming. God will judge the thief. Do not put repentance off for another day or time. It must happen today. Now, the second internal cause leading to stealing that Watson identified was covetousness. What is covetousness? Watson explained it as this an immoderate desire of getting. An immoderate desire of getting, which is at the very root of theft. So covetousness is spiritual theft, for it begins in the heart. This is how Watson said it very, very wonderfully. He said this, a man covets more than his own. And this itch of covetousness makes him scratch what he can from another Covetousness is dangerous and a leading cause of theft. Therefore, obedience requires ongoing growth in humble contentment. Brothers and sisters, we need to be content in the lot that God has assigned to you in his loving kindness. Be content in your vocation. And with what you have. Contentment is the wall that keeps coveting away. Now, these are some of the ways in which we can combat the internal battle and temptations to steal. This is how we put our heart in the right place. But what about the external aspect? How do we obey this commandment, this imperative, externally in practical ways? If internal obedience means deeper faith in the providence of God, proper fear of the judgment of God and humble contentment in the vocation and lot that we have, what does it look like not to steal in practice or externally? Here's Paul's answer. You ready? Honest and diligent work. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work, With his own hands. Now, the verse in front of us makes something very clear. The opposite of stealing is not just abstaining from theft in a passive form. Did you get that? The opposite of stealing is honest, diligent work in an active form. It is interesting. It is very interesting because the command you shall not steal many times is thought of as being passive only. In other words, we obey the commandment simply by abstaining from illegally taking what is not ours. And that is true. That is proper. Of course we must abstain from that, but by necessity, As indicated here by Paul, this commandment is also very active. On the one hand, you don't take what is yours. On the other hand, you must be honest and a diligent worker. This means that ultimately obedience to this commandment requires both passivity and activity. So let me add this. Let me add this. You must must know this. Christians, Christians should be the best workers on earth, both in terms of their honesty and in terms of their diligence. Christians should be the best workers on earth. The apostle Paul, of course, he had a very, very robust theology of work. He had a lot to say about work and the Bible in general, in many places uh, says a lot about work as well. But I want to take this even further The Bible presents God himself as a worker. In fact, we we just read that together as we were letting worship. You can take the importance of work all the way up to the highest level, heaven itself. Consider the words of of, uh, David in Psalm 8, verse 3. God is a worker as seen in creation. David said this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. Consider Psalm 111 verse two. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. God is also a worker as seen in miraculous restoration. One day, Jesus healed a man who had been sick for 38 years and he healed this man during a Sabbath day. And of course, some of the religious leaders didn't like that. And they complained. And what did Jesus say to them? My father is working until now. And God is also a worker as seen in salvation. In John chapter six, verse 29, Jesus said this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. God is a worker. God works. Even in the garden of Eden, God told Adam to work it. Work has always been in the picture. The only difference is that after the fall, work became laborious and toilsome. But work has always been good. In fact, so strongly did Paul believe in this, that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said this, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Sounds harsh? I don't think so. It sounds Christian. Consider some of the benefits of honest, diligent work. Number one, it keeps you be- busy which in turn keeps idleness away. You know why that matters? It matters because there is a connection between idleness and stealing. You know why? Because according to Proverbs chapter 19, verse 15, idleness leads to hunger. What is idleness? Believe it or not, I'm going to quote here from Abraham Lincoln. He had a good answer to that question. What is idleness? One day, Abraham Lincoln received a letter from his stepbrother, John D. Johnston, in which John asked for money because he was broke and therefore he needed a loan from Abraham Lincoln. And here's an excerpt of Lincoln's brilliant response to his stepbrother. And I quote your request for $80. I do not think it best to comply with now at the various times when I have helped you a little, you have said to me, we can get along very well now, but in a very short time, I find you in the same difficulty again. Now this can only happen by some defect in your conduct. What that defect is. I think I know you are not lazy and still you are an idler. I doubt whether, since I saw you, you have done a good whole day's work in any one day. The habit of uselessly wasting time is the whole difficulty. You are now in need of some ready money. And what I propose is, said Abraham Lincoln, that you shall work tooth and nail for somebody who will give you the money for it. End quote. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that a good, honest, direct question? What is idleness? It is the habit of uselessly wasting time. And this eventually leads to hunger. Now, the second benefit of honest, diligent work is this. It promotes healthy independence. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 11? Paul said this. He said to the Thessalonians, that they should aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands. As we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, a beautiful illustration of this is the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. I would encourage you to take some time this week to read that section of scripture. It is beautiful, a beautiful portrayal of someone who is not dependent on anyone. But there is a third wonderful benefit that comes from honest, diligent work, which I will present in the form of a question. And it is my last point. And it is this question. Number three, why should we obey this imperative? Why should we obey it? It may come as a surprise, but here's the ultimate reason and the ultimate benefit of not stealing and working hard. Being a good worker. You know what it is? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Isn't that beautiful? We put off stealing and put on honest, diligent work for the sake of love for neighbor. I'm going to put it this way. Honest, diligent work is fueled By compassion, followed by generosity, which are the two arms by which love embraces those in need. Honest, diligent work is fueled by compassion, followed by generosity, which are the two arms by which love embraces those in need. Here's an interesting insight that I hope you will take home with you. From this one verse, we can understand that both stealing and poor work ethic stem primarily from a serious deficiency in love and a lack of compassion and generosity. So the application question for us this morning is not only do you steal, but also how is your work ethic? Are you a good worker? Now consider the ter- the The title of this sermon, I've entitled it love works. I hope that you understand what I mean by now to not steal is to work honestly and diligently for the sake of others. Or we could say it negatively to steal can be understood as a refusal to work diligently and honestly, or not to work at all. Thus breaking the law of Christian love. Because if I refuse to work or if I work poorly, I won't have anything to share. That's amazing. Love works. This further means that if you want to know whether someone truly loves his or her neighbor, you can look at their work ethic. In other words, if we are motivated by love in everything that we do, as we obviously should, then this gospel love will lead us to honest, diligent work for the sake of our neighbor, because love works. Now, turn in your Bibles, and I'm going to finish with this. Paul said it best, and he said it beautifully. Some of you know where I'm going already. In Romans chapter 13, Paul said it best, beginning in verse 8 through verse 10. This is what Paul said Romans 13, beginning in verse eight. Oh, no one, anything. Oh, no one, anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So how do we love other people? Verse nine for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Stealing along with poor work ethic is ultimately an offense against those who are also members of the body of Christ. It is a failure to love. It is a failure to love. You must work well for the sake of love. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we give you thanks for giving us your word, your written infallible, perfect word. And thank you, Father, for reminding us of something that many of us already know. But I know that uh, you tell us your truth so that we may study it, comprehend it, and apply it. I pray for those this morning who have struggled with this particular sin. I pray, Father, that they will find Forgiveness and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ who died to take away all our sins. I pray for those who are in this moment, maybe walking in this sin. I pray Lord that you will bring them and call them to repentance, that they will return what they stole and come to the cross of the Lord. We thank you father for sending your son to save us from the one who came to steal, to kill and to destroy. And for bringing us into the kingdom of your beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, help us by the power of your spirit to live according to the gospel. And all these things we pray in the precious name of the Lord Jesus, our savior. Amen.